The era of the Reformation is defined by both the theological insights that were brought forward by Martin Luther and the Reformers and the ruling authorities' response to those insights. If 1520 was the year when Luther can outline some of his most explosive theological positions, 1521 was the year the Roman Church and the state responded with excommunication and the accompanying threats of, ex- of execution. Today we have an overview of 1521, a year of threats, kidnapping, political intrigue, and unexpectedly, hope. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap, a podcast dedicated to the Lutheran Reformation, historical documents, and how they all kind of intersect with our lives today, all with a beer break, where we we review a great beer, or sometimes a not so good beer. (laughs) Well, I almost always like them. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) So it's it's always great in my eyes. Well, let's let's get started. Um, Through the course of 1520... Martin Luther outlined the critical components of his new, and he called it the evangelical theology. And that's how he was hoping the church would be kind of referred to as an evangelical community. Um, and that communion of saints, that, that building on the promise, it wasn't until later that people, his opponents, would call them Lutherans, this kind of... Is that pejorative? Yes. So he's calling it an evangelical theology, and he's not yet convinced that he's building a new church. He's still hopeful that he's reforming the church. Well, so if 1520 is when he Martin Luther goes and he he stakes out his some of his most critical beliefs and we covered those in several episode times. 59 we reviewed the whole of 1520. And then now 1521 is the year of the empire strikes back. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and it begins on January 3rd when the pope makes good on his threat to excommunicate Luther with the papal bull Desit Romanum Pontificum, which means it befits the Roman pontiff. So there's sometimes a little confusion over all these uh, papal bulls. So let's, let's, there's exerge domine. And exerge domine is essentially you better do something or I'm going to excommunicate you. It's the threat. And so June 15th, 1520, it's, it's probably more famous than the final Desit Romanum Pontif- Pontificum. Partly because it's just a great name, Exerge Domine. Um, but it, that Exerge Domine, it didn't excommunicate Luther. It did contain 41 theses against Luther, and it required Luther to recant his position. Luther ended up burning this bull along with canon law in Wittenberg on December 10th, 1520, which was the deadline of his response. If he didn't respond by December 10th, it was considered an act of admission that he was guilty and he would be excommunicated. So on that deadline day, he burns it. It's interesting that he put off burning it. It's something obviously, and we don't talk about it much, but he must have given it a lot of thought. You know, this was something he took very seriously and he finally came to the realization or to the, the position that he had to stand against this. So it took him quite a while, 60 days from receiving the document. He didn't wait till the last day, but when he finally did make his decision, there was no more waffling. Right, right. Then it's typical for Luther. So the actual excommunication of Luther was done by, and I'm going to screw this up, but Deset Romanium Romanum Pontificum or something. There you go. Okay. Interestingly, that declaration of that bull wasn't well known. In January 1521, though it gets published, it's not publicly read, and it's left to Charles V to read it out loud. 
um, or to, at, at the Diet of Worms to share it. And he waits to share it until a little bit later in the Diet of Worms. We're going to talk more about the Diet of Worms. But let's look at this uh, Desit Romanum. Well, let's say, uh, you know, if there's confusion, it's truly understandable. Uh, even Luther paid more attention to Exerge Domine. Yeah. You know, and that was, so in March of 1521, Luther really effectively uh, ignored Desit Romanian uh, and writes a rebuttal to Exerge Domine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and called uh, defense an explanation of all the articles. So he's he almost you know this 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 papal bull that that excommunicated him. He's still acting like well no we're still sort of discussing things. And, and you know Mike as you wrote uh, some of these comments, I was curious about that. And that's why and that's how I learned that the Deset Romanum wasn't publicly read till later in the spring. And so when he responds in 1521. March with that that commentary, defense and explanation. He might not have known about Desert Romanum yet. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, he obviously. Well, that's true. That's true because he was. Anyway, he's still dealing with Exerge Domine. And yeah. he, and even if he does know about Desert, you make a great point that Desert Romanum is just a, executing the threat. I'm going to excommunicate you if you don't do anything. Luther doesn't do anything. He gets excommunicated. There's no new ground right. in this this document that's uh, prepared by the Pope and released in January and then publicly read later. And now, over the years, Roman Catholic and Lutheran leaders have returned to these events that are surrounding this Exerge Domine and this Desert Romanum and trying to figure out, could we pull back some of the threats and, and the words and the anathemas? And uh, in 1970s, it looked like the Vatican even might lift this excommunication and rehabilitate Martin Luther. But in 2008, a Vatican spokesman said rumors that the Vatican is set to rehabilitate Martin Luther, the 16th century leader of the Protestant Reformation, are groundless. So that kind of put the nail in that coffin, even though, I mean, Luther was already pretty much nailed in the coffin at that <laughs> yeah. point and waiting for the trumpet on the last day. There is this... Uh, protocol within the Roman Catholic Church for someone who's died that has been declared a heretic or excommunicated that the church later on can say, you know, we've got new information. You know, it's funny. I was, uh, I, I still have a lot of ties to the Catholic Church and there are always, I mean, going back to John Paul II, you know, making comments about Luther that are very, um, I'll say, uh, complimentary. And there's this weird thing going on in the Catholic Church where there is a soft spot for Martin Luther nowadays. My Maria was looking at, my wife, uh, was looking at a, a video of the Pope walking through the Vatican, and he walked right by a, a statue of Martin Luther. And she said, oh, that must be in the Hall of Heretics. <laughs> of course, there's no Hall of Heretics no. in the Vatican. But there's there's sort of this... This, they have a very unusual, especially after Vatican II, the Catholic Church really struggles with Martin Luther and, and their position on him. It's, it's an ongoing thing. At Historic Trinity Lutheran Church in downtown Detroit, they received a sculpture of Martin Luther that had been originally prepared for a Catholic church. And that uh, as it came time for its installation in that church, uh, it wasn't universally well received by that uh, congregation, and so the 
they had to get it somewhere. They gave it to a Lutheran church someplace. They gave it to a Lutheran <laughs> church. Now, the Roman Curia did explain in 2008 that they're just not going to be a practice of lifting excommunications for those that have died, but only for those that are living. But they And you used that word rehabilitate, and that's, that's kind of different than unexcommunicating someone, but it is... Yeah, it, it all is this sort of murky area in, in canon law, and Roman Catholic canon law. And I'm not, you know, I'm certainly not a Roman Catholic lawyer. Me neither. So I'm not going to, it just seems like you're, there's a lot of mixed messages coming from different facets of the Roman Catholic Church, in even today. In 1521, not many mixed messages. No, <laughs> things in, were pretty clear. And in 1521, excommunication, though an ecclesiastical event... That's just a $5 word, meaning... Of the church. To put it another way, the excommunication of Luther was a church thing. Except it wasn't. The church in the 1500s had a really strong relationship with the government. So when the church excommunicated somebody, it was really up to the government to then take steps to figure out what that discipline was going to be. So Luther's been excommunicated... Charles V knows about this, and he now has to figure out what he's going to do. So what, Lu- what Charles V does is he, he calls Luther to the next big governmental meeting, which is called a diet during this era, um, and that's scheduled for April in the city of Worms. Um, I noticed you said it with a V sound. So in English, it looks like the word worms, like the creepy crawly things on the ground that come out when it's rain. Right. And a diet of worms is not like what my sixth grade science teacher did where he had us chop up worms and put them into cookies like chocolate chip cookies. This is an actual important political religious event. The diet, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this is the diet, it's the diet of worms. And that's part of the reason I use the V is to, <laughs> is to sort of sidestep that whole worm discussion. So, you know, there is not another event in the life of Luther that has more religious and political ex- uh, significance than his appearance at the Diet of Worms. The mastermind behind the Pope's attempts to silence Luther has been the papal nuncio, Aleander. Now, Aleander, he wants to be the one that interrogates Luther. But... You know, that wasn't the plan. You know, so there, there you have this, this other guy, Glaspian. And Glaspian is the father confessor to Charles V. So whenever Charles has to confess his sins, he goes to Glaspian. Now, Glaspian, though, is not well received as the interrogator because he has, meanwhile, behind the scenes, attempted a compromise. He's brought a solution. Uh, to Frederick and the other reformers, that if we bring about these moral reforms that have made people upset about the Pope, but we don't really deal with the theology that has caused these moral reforms, would that be good enough? So he's doing this whole back alley deal type thing. And so he's sort of taken out of the mix as somebody who can interrogate Luther. So they eventually settle on uh, Johann Eck. Now, Johann Eck is not the Johann Eck that we've discussed before in this podcast. And in the past, we've talked about Johann Eck, uh, a champion for indulgences, and someone who at the Leipzig debate was going to debate Andreas Karlstadt, but Karlstadt messes up and drops his books and is all confused, and Luther steps in. That Johann Eck is not the one we're talking about. This one is the spokesperson, the secretary to the Archbishop of Trier. So we're going through all this to sort of highlight that this is not just a religious discussion. 
this is as much political as it is religious, and there's a lot of back back alley dealings going on here. The fact that there's so much conversation about who is even going to be the interrogator lets us know this is not just a paper conversation uh, between documents passed back and forth. This is um, this uh, is this is life and death. This yeah. is life, and Aleander is a perfect example. So Aleander uh, wants Luther to be, we'll say, quote unquote, severely disciplined. And, you know, in the past, in this era, that means burned at the stake. You know, who knows what he means by that, but he's asking for Luther to be severely disciplined. The emperor has promised that Luther would be kept safe during his travels to Worms. So the interesting thing about that is in the past, and this is a little tip of the hat to Charles V. In the past, emperors would allow, you know, like with John Huss, you know, they gave him safe, safe travels, but then... In the you know when they had him there, they burned him. And what the church leaders told the emperor, uh, the the king back in 1403, 1407, whatever that Council of Constance was, that Jan Hus no longer needed safe passage because he was a heretic. He's a persona non grata. He doesn't exist as someone that's legitimately in this empire anymore. So you don't have to pay any attention to him. You can hand him over you, to us and we'll burn him for you. you. You can break your promise. You can break your promise. Charles V is not going to do that. He's a man of his word and he kept Luther safe during his travels to Worms and also his travels away from Worms. So Aleander is not going to get the chance to corner Luther in Worms and burn him in that city. So when Luther arrives in Worms in the middle of April 1521, he was guided through the side streets to avoid all the people trying to get a glimpse of him. The trial starts. There's a presentation of books that Luther's written, and many of the books were not even controversial books. They're just all lumped together on this table. So both, it starts out with both Luther and Eck making statements in both German and Latin. And Luther's response to Eck's questions at the beginning of the trial, two questions have been put to me by his imperial majesty. First, whether I wish all the books bearing my name to be regarded as my own work. Second, whether I intend to stand by them or, in fact, retract anything from those which have been published by me till now. To these two questions, I shall respond briefly and to the point, and to the best of my ability. First, I must indeed include the books just now named are among those written by me, and I shall never deny any of them. As for the next question, whether I would likewise affirm everything or retract what is supposed to have been uttered beyond the testimony of Scripture— because of the, because this question of is a question of faith and the salvation of souls, and because it concerns the divine word which we are all bound to reverence, for there is nothing greater in heaven or on earth, it would be rash and at the same time dangerous for me to put forth anything without proper consideration. He goes on and he basically asks for a little bit more time. Ex annoyed. He believed that Luther had had plenty of opportunities to learn why he was summoned. Why are you surprised that we're summoning you to recant? <laughs> but nevertheless, the emperor did grant Luther a little bit more time. and gave him one more day. So after four o'clock in the afternoon, the following day, the herald comes and he leads Luther to the court. Now, the first day's meeting was in a really small side room. But the next day, this momentous moment has been moved to a much larger room. So we now know that the Diet of Worms was one of the great turning points in Western history. It's the, poem, it's the moment when the religious argument between the Pope and, the, and Luther turned, in, turned a corner, and it became an argument about the role of the church in government affairs. At the time, 
Nobody saw it like that. The fact that the meeting between Luther and the emperor happened at 6 o'clock at the end of the day, after all the other business of the Diet had finished, shows that this was seen as something to put at the end of a day. Now, when the discussion finally did resume, when Luther finally did get in front of the emperor, Eck asked Luther, do you wish to defend all your acknowledged books or retract some? Luther replies in Latin and German. His response was described as humble, quiet, modest, but also including Christian boldness and firmness. So we thought about reading Luther's comments, but it goes on for about a page, so we'll skip to the punchline. After Luther's little humble, quiet, modest response, about 10 minutes long, uh, the emperor complained that Luther is not answering the question. So Luther answers, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner. Neither horned nor toothed. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. That last line, here I stand, some of the transcribers of the event record it, some don't. There's suspicion that maybe he didn't say it. More recently, there's a return back to the affirmation that he did say it by noticing that the scribes that do record him having said it are the ones that were closer to Luther. And the ones who don't include that in the transcription of the events of that day were further away. The expectation is that after Luther makes his statement, the room becomes very loud and boisterous with everyone recognizing the significance of what he has claimed and that only those transcribers closest to Luther heard him say the phrase, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. What happens then? So after that, Luther leaves the diet. He leaves the diet early in the morning. He sneaks out and he's kidnapped on his way back home to keep him safe while the emperor sought to arrest him. Luther's friends, the ones who kidnapped him, they took him to the Warburg Castle, uh, where he ended up staying for about a year, May 4th, 1521 to February 29th, 1522. So during his time at the Warburg Castle, Luther made good use of all the time he had on his hands. Most significantly, he trans- translated Erasmus's Greek New Testament into German. He released on September 21st, 1522, uh, the translation of the Bible, it's considered a great literary achievement of the 1500s. Uh, Romans 3.28 shows how Luther worked the angle of being the translator. He, he wanted to be sure to communicate in the German language the meaning of the Greek text. And so he added the word alone. Uh, a person is justified by faith alone. That's really his trying to make sure that the meaning of the original Greek was understood. Um, he wrote in, uh, in 19, uh, 1530 to explain this decision that the word alone conformed to the German idiom. And that showed his pattern of being a translator, of not just going a word-word, wooden translation, but he wanted to make sure he brought into the liveliness of the German language, the liveliness of the Greek words. So the initial price for the German New Testament when it was published in December of 1522 was about one guilder. That's about two months' salary for a, for a schoolmaster. So that's pretty, pretty hefty. There's an investment to make, though, in eternity by having God's word at your hands. It is time for us to take a beer break. 
Okay. Uh, the, the, that thunk is because I'm drinking out of a can. I and see. I've got uh, Oktoberfest glass in front of me. So we are drinking a beer that has been produced by an unplugged brewing company in El Rye. Illyria. Illyria, Ohio. Now, the owners of this brewery, Carlos, Tim, and Jose, they found each other by working together at Highland Software. And they wanted a place, as they were in this very plugged-in world, to unplug. Uh, so every other day, he says, I was making beer with Tim to the point where we were making too much. We couldn't drink it all. And they decided to offer their beer at events, but they needed a name. They spent a month before Lopez said, what about Unplugged? At the end of the day, we're so into our electronics, so into work, so into all of that. People in general need to unplug. Now, I stumbled across this beer. I was at a bar in, uh, in Vermilion, Ohio over the summer, or this fall, I should say. And uh, the owner of the, the, the bar is uh, Tom Hug. The bar's name is Huggy's Social Club or Social House. I Social think. House, yeah. And, uh, and so this, this beer is a, uh, it's a beer for Golden Retriever Rescue. And what's the beer called? It's called Dudley's Golden Ale. It's named after Tom's, Tom's dog, Dudley, who passed away a couple of years ago. And so Tom loves... Loves golden retrievers, and he hooked up with these guys from Unplugged, and they put this this beer together. You you can only get it there, uh, to my knowledge, in Vermilion, Ohio. So if you want to have this Dudley's Golden Ale, go to Huggies Vermilion. No, Huggies Social House in Vermilion, Ohio. Yes. Buy the beer and help support Golden Retriever rescue that's right what's that's your right. opinion of the beer mike i actually uh, of course i like it but this is this is actually a very mild beer mm-hmm. um it, it actually reminds me of a of a, a weizen beer it's so mild yeah uh, it's a golden ale it's sweet it's creamy um and it, it's got just a delicious uh reach across all of my tongue oh yeah and it does the you know no aftertaste very clean um just a nice nice easy drinking yeah I'm really enjoying it. I enjoy all beer, but this is, this is an easy one. So there you go. Unplugged Brewing Company, Dudley's Golden Ale, available at Huggies Social House in Vermilion, Ohio, to support Golden Retriever Rescue. That's right. our beer break for today. Um, I hope you all rush quickly down <laughs> to Huggies to try this and it's to support a, Golden Retriever. I think it's only two and a half hours away from Birmingham, Michigan, so... Just just a hop and a skip. We all need a reason uh, for a day trip. There you go. Returning back to 1521, we're going to move from the Diet of Worms. And we've had previous episodes where we've gone in much more detail about the Diet of Worms. But it's a fun, uh, it's filled with so much political and religious intrigue. I Every time I get into it, I, I learn more. But we're going to move on. And we're going to go to summer of 1521. Before Luther does kind of the meat of his translation work, he has been kind of asked to write something for the young prince, uh, the nephew of Frederick the Wise, and that's John Frederick. Now, John Frederick, uh, at the time when he asked Luther, was 16 or 17 years old, and they had some correspondence going back and forth, uh, talking about you know John Frederick helping out Luther and Luther saying thank you. And eventually Luther made this promise that he was going to give him a little bit of advice on, on how to rule. And, and so Luther, it took him two years, over two years, to get this put together. 
And so he 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 uh, he he's working. It's I think John Frederick. By the time he releases it, is 19 years old. Uh, Luther's worked on it for a couple of years. He finally finished it up at the Wartburg Castle. One of the first things he did when he was there. And this the the medium for his advice, the the way he's going to give advice to John Frederick and how to rule is by providing a commentary on the Magnificat. So Luther in, is going on uh, in fe- February of, of 1521, Luther wrote to Spallatin. He said, I am busy expounding Mary's canticle for the young prince as an answer, th- though a tardy one, to his re- recent gracious letter to me. He later complained about his work getting interrupted by the quote-unquote troublesome quarrels. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> troublesome quarrels of his many adversaries. On Easter Sunday, he sent... An early draft of his work to John Frederick. This first set, this early draft, was about one-third of the entire work. The completion of the work was one of the first fruits of his time at the Vorpberg, which he called to some his wilderness sojourn. So Luther thought his commentary on the Magnificat would provide a helpful mirror for the young prince to whom he dedicated the work. He saw Mary's song as a model of prayer and praise for a Christian, and her prayer did not expect to be heard based on any merit of her own. Why do we remember the Magnificat? Not because it was sung by Mary, but because of what it spoke to. Uh, It spoke to God in response to God's grace. Now, Mary's faith and her humility and her willingness gives direction for all Christians in their prayers, according to Luther. Uh, so Luther, as he's going through this, he identifies six works of God in the song, and this is near the end, uh, and finds their their origin in the incarnation. And we can this is this this is worth a whole podcast in itself. Was, so Mike and I, we were starting to chart out what our next episodes are going to be, and we're going to have a whole episode on the Magnificat and what Luther wrote about it. But briefly, he writes about uh, six works of God that. Uh, are finding their starting point in the incarnation of Jesus. Mercy, the breaking of spiritual pride, putting down the mighty, exalting the lowly, authoring trust, and then giving good things. So Luther's using the Magnificat, Mary's song, that she sings after she hears from the angel she's going to give birth to a son. And this song becomes a way to think about the world. And, and so Luther's commentary on the Magnificat represents how Mary is honored as a vehicle for Christ in this world. And personally, uh, I think Luther's commentary on the myth, uh, Magnificat is a perfect discussion on ma- managing a lot of the problems because of, that we have today. You know, Mary is one of the th- points Luther makes is these great gifts that we are given in the temporal world are trinkets. And Mary recognizes that in her Magnificat, and she talks about the importance of, of things like faith and God's mercy and, and how that takes precedent over things like wisdom and power and wealth. And so it's, you know, here we are alive in a very, you know, awash in good things, and we can get distracted by them. And Mary but pulls power us and wealth and our drive for leisure still leave us distracted from the eternal things that God is providing us and how those eternal gifts can shape and order our regular days. This is what Luther does. He translates the Song of Mary into concrete and measured advice 
for John Frederick so he can learn how to manage his own struggles within the pleasures of this world. So that's that's going to be a whole episode in itself. Summer that's, of 1521, a great so, time to be alive. That's right. So after the Diet of Worms, uh, Luther no longer expected Rome to undertake any of the changes he felt were necessary to restore the evangelical nature of the church. Um, so he published a bunch of stuff in 1521 while he was at the Wartburg in his effort to make practical reforms of the Mass. In November, he authors a treatise called The Misuse of the Mass. And now this is kind of a, a propelling forward from 1520 when he wrote on the Babylonian captivity of the church. Uh, that held a large section on Luther's critique of the Mass. He continues to critique the withholding of the cup from the laity, the doctrine of transubstantiation, and the idea of the Mass as a sacrifice. His frustration with the doctrine of transubstantiation isn't as much about how the Roman Catholic Church, no, I'm sorry, it was with how the Roman Catholic Church explained the presence of Christ. He he agrees that Christ is present in the meal, in the body and blood for us Christians to eat and to drink, but transubstantiation is a whole idea that comes out of Aristotle, and it's built on philosophical constructs that aren't shaped by the biblical witness. And so Luther's frustration with transubstantiation is not that there is the body and blood of Christ, but how they use Aristotle to support their purpose. What uh, was explained to me is that Luther doesn't say that transubstantiation is... He doesn't say how it happens. Right. Maybe transubstantiation is what goes on. Who knows? But it's it's not biblical mm-hmm. to start putting forward things that, you know, talking about how God does things just based on our musings. Even in 1537 in the Small Cold Articles, he calls it uh, sophistry busyness to talk about transubstantiation. So in August, uh, Luther also wrote to Milton Melanchthon about his writings on the Mass and the changes he planned to put in place when he returned to Wittenberg. Now, some of his friends in Wittenberg are becoming impatient, and they know that Luther's writing about the misuse of the Mass, has plans for implementing changes when he returns to Wittenberg, and so they themselves discuss implementing these changes Immediately. Yeah, and that, so this is where Andreas Karlstadt in 1521, he really begins a zealous movement that would require, uh, and the, the, really, ultimately, it's going to require Luther to, to, to reprimand him. But Luther's going to return back to Wittenberg in the spring of 1522 for the Invocavit sermons to try to restore order back to Wittenberg. Why does he have to restore order? Because Andreas Karlstadt has caused incredible disorder by accelerating the changes to the Mass. Here's what happens. 1521, Christmas Day, Andreas Karlstadt celebrates what he calls the first Reformed Communion service. The details of this is that uh, he did not lift up the body of Christ for people to see it in the genuflect. He purposely wore secular clothing. He uh, revised the language uh, to remove anything about sacrifice. So there's no references to the sacrifice of Christ making our works beneficial. And finally, he shouts out the words of, of institution in German. And, and the reason he shouts is because it had been the protocol in the celebration of the Mass for the priest to face away from the people, to face towards the altar, and to whisper the words of institution. 
and that the uh, in Latin, in Latin, and that bells would chime as he said, "This is my body," and "Take drink, this is my blood." So people couldn't hear the words, but they'd hear the chime of the bells. <clears throat> so what Karlstadt says, he says it in German, and he shouts it, shouts it to make sure everyone hears it. Now we are describing the end of 1521. There's so much that happens in 1522: the Invocavit sermons, the return of Luther back to Wittenberg. Even in January of 1522, our Andreas Karlstadt still causing some trouble. He uh, gets approval by the Wittenberg City Council in 1522 to remove all religious imagery from the city. Things are going to get spicy real quick. Talking about spicy, he marries a 15-year-old girl in January. (laughs) Andreas Karlstadt, this guy we're talking about, he was Luther's... uh, elder in the university. He was a professor at the university before Luther Sort of was. like the dean. He was the dean before Luther got there. And oh my goodness, what trouble he creates that winter of 21-22. This podcast today has been a summary of 1521. Uh, we have briefly touched the Diet of Worms, uh, the writing of the Magnificat, Luther's desires to create uh, change in the mass, and how Karlstadt, uh, you give a mouse a cookie, he wants so much more. Karlstadt just takes that uh, and causes a, a controversy in Wittenberg that requires the return of Luther. We have more podcasts coming. We've had a little bit of a delay as Mike and I have been uh, kind of working in our own ways from working from home during COVID. Uh, We had in December of 2020, a review of the year 1520. Uh, Now in December of 2021, we have a summary of 1521. But in 2022, we plan to have a little bit more of a regular rhythm. We've got an episode on the Magnificat. We've got an episode on Luther's interpretation of Psalm 2. I'd like to, we're also going to be doing one on, that we missed previously, can't believe we missed Luther's treatise on good works. Yeah, so as we went through the the treatises that Luther kind of got busy with to start to establish his theological evangelical movement, he wrote a treatise on good works. And uh, we spent a lot of time, his treatise on the freedom of a Christian, uh, but now this one will help us place our freedom into the context of loving caring for our neighbor. So we've got a lot to cover um, and we'll we'll see you uh, next time. So this has been Grace on Tap. Prost. Prost. <laughs>